Lord God, we do come on bended hearts, submitted to your kingship and your lordship this morning. And Lord, we do desire to really feel the weightiness of this worldwide flood that you brought upon the earth and to see what relevance it has for ourselves and the judgment that is yet to come upon this world. So Lord, would you cause our hearts to be stirred by the truth of who you are and what's coming and how we can be saved from the wrath which is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis and we've been seeing Jesus pictured in many different types and shadows and prophecies. We saw that Jesus is our creator. We saw that he's our Sabbath, that he's the tree of life, that he's our heavenly bridegroom, that he is the obedient son, and he is our righteous covering, and he's the conqueror of Satan, and he is the one whose blood speaks better than Abel's. But we are going to flip over now to chapter 6 in the book of Genesis, and we're going to see that Jesus is our refuge from wrath this morning. And as we look at this chapter, actually it's a unit. It's actually chapter 6, 7, and 8. And we learn a different facet of the truth of Christ in each one of these chapters. In Genesis chapter 6, we see the ark in preparation. In Genesis chapter 7, we see the ark in the flood. In Genesis chapter 8, we see the ark resting on the mount. And each one of those truths shows something about Jesus. The ark in preparation. Hebrews chapter 10 says that God prepared a body for Jesus. Just as the ark needed to be prepared so that it could save a people, so a savior had to be prepared so that he could save some people. And the very first element of preparation for Jesus was that he had to become a man. God had to become flesh. God had to assume a human nature. So the incarnation is what is pointed out in chapter 6. The preparation for the salvation that was to come upon Noah and his family. Chapter 7, the ark was in the flood. Here we see that the ark bore the awful wrath of God so that the people inside of that ark could be safe and secure and free from that wrath. So here we're not looking at the incarnation. We're looking at the propitiation of Christ. Propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. So because the wrath was hurled against the ark, the people inside of it were were safe and secure from that wrath, that judgment. Propitiation. Chapter 8. Once God's judgment had been fully accomplished and spent upon the people of the world and upon the ark, what do we have? We have the ark resting now upon Mount Ararat. And just as Jesus went through the flood of God's judgment and bore God's judgment for us, now he has risen from the dead, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and now he rests and he sits. And he is a sitting Savior because the work has been accomplished. So here we find his exaltation. Chapter 6, incarnation. Chapter 7, propitiation. Chapter 7, 
exaltation. But there are two things that, as I come to chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, that I am assuming, and I hope you assume the same thing. Number one, that this flood of judgment was a historical fact. If you believe the Bible, I don't think there's any way to escape the fact that this actually took place. There was a day in history when God actually sent this flood of judgment upon the world, and that world was destroyed in the flood. This isn't some kind of myth or fictitious fable. This is real history that we're reading about. That's number one. Number two, that the flood was universal. Universal. Now, there are some people, some scholars, who try to present this theory that the flood was actually only local. In other words, that it was only localized to Palestine. That it flooded the area of Palestine, but not the rest of the world. But that just doesn't square with some of the things we read, some of the things we've already read, especially Genesis chapter 7. Verse 19 says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Now, if we just take the Bible in its natural, plain interpretation, that means the whole world was flooded. You say, well, that's so hard to believe. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? If the Lord determines He's going to wipe out all life on the earth, there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. So these are my two assumptions. The flood is historical. The flood is universal. Now, as we work our way through this passage, I want you to see something about the wrath of God. And you say, oh, Brian, I didn't come to hear about the wrath of God. I'm sorry you did. Because that's what the Bible is speaking about in these chapters. I told you just a minute ago, we want to treat the Bible the way God treats it. We want to give full weight to every part that God gives full weight to. And that's what we find here in these chapters. God's wrath came upon an ungodly world. And there are five things I want you to take away from these chapters about the wrath of God. The first one is the wrath of God was decreed. God's wrath was decreed. Now take a look at it. Open up to Genesis 6. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then look at verse 17. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life, from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. God decreed to Noah what he was going to do. The word decree means it's a royal decision. God is the king, the sovereign over all the universe, makes a decision that he's going to flood the world. He's going to destroy all flesh. God decreed this. In Second Peter chapter 3, Verse 6, the Bible says, The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You see, the flood was typical. The flood happened. The flood is historical. But the flood pitched 
or points forward to a greater reality. And the greater reality is that one day God is going to destroy this world, not by water, but by fire. And that's going to take place when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And when that happens, all mankind are going to be judged. Some will be received into glory and others will be cast into the lake of fire. There's coming a great day of God's wrath on this world. And the flood is just a little picture that was pointing towards it. Paul said when he was preaching on Mars Hill, he said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's fixed a day. That means that he's decreed that there is coming a day when he is going to pour out his wrath upon the sin of this world. And it's fixed. We can't change it. (laughs) Debbie and I were talking to a man on his doorstep yesterday. He says, well, God's just going to have to change. And I looked him in the eye and said, sir, God is not going to change. He's immutable. If anyone's going to change, it's going to have to be you. God doesn't move. And God is fixed today. It's fixed. It cannot be changed. It's decreed. It is predestined. It will take place by the sovereign power of Almighty God. Not only that, but Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want to read this to you. He speaks about this judgment that is to come. 2 Thessalonians 1, and I'm going to pick up in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is the day we were just talking about, the day that's fixed. He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints, when? On that day. day, The fixed day. The decreed day. I want you to listen real carefully today, especially if you're not converted. There's coming a day when we are going to stand before God. And his wrath is going to be poured out in a far greater way than it was poured out in the day of Noah. And unless you've taken shelter in the only propitiation, the only refuge that God has given to mankind, unless you've done that, this is going to be true of you. You will receive the retribution of God because you have not known God and you have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this wrath of God, according to Genesis chapter 6, is a decreed wrath. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now why is God going to pour out wrath upon people? It's because of their hearts, isn't it? They're stubborn hearts. They're unrepentant hearts. And it's like a dam. You know, you build a dam and you let the creek come in and the water just rises and rises.
rises and rises and rises. Paul says you're storing up wrath. The, the floodwaters are rising. Every time you sin and don't repent, the water level gets higher and higher and higher. And one day the dam is going to break. And you're going to be destroyed. So the first thing we see is the wrath of God was decreed. Secondly, the wrath of God is deserved. It's deserved. Go back with me to chapter 5. Verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now there's a real interesting difference between verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, God creates Adam in his own likeness. In verse 3, Adam has a son in Adam's likeness. Now, when Adam fathered a son, was he sinless or sinful? Sinful. It was sinful. It happened after the fall, didn't it? He was already depraved and corrupted. Adam fathered a child in his own sinful fallen condition, and so he passed that sinful nature onto his children, who passed it to their children, and that's why all mankind today are corrupt and depraved. We receive a sinful nature from birth. Now, it is true that everybody in the world, in a sense, is made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong for us to murder. That's wrong, why it's wrong for us to abort babies. Those babies and those people who are murdered, they're made in the image of God. The problem is that after the fall, the image of God has been distorted and twisted and perverted. Have you ever gone to one of those carnivals and you look in the mirror and you look really crazy, like your head's this big and your body's this big, and you go, oh, that's weird, that's what... That's what it's like after the fall. There's a distortion of the image of God. There is still an image, but it doesn't look the way it originally looked. And so mankind are fallen because their father is fallen, and that sinful nature is passed down to every human being, save one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is proved to us because as you go through chapter 5, you're going to read something very interesting. Verse 5 says, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And you just go through this list seven times, seven generations. The Bible is very clear to tell us that he died. What did God tell Adam in the day that he ate of that forbidden fruit? You're going to die. He died, and all of his offspring died. That's why today, 100%, 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100 people are going to die unless God, Jesus comes back before them. Death is the wages of sin. Notice also in chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a staggering statement. Take a look at it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Well, how great was it? Well, it had to do not only with his outward actions, but his heart. Do you see that? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, his affections, was only evil continually. And it wasn't just his heart. 
or the thoughts that flowed out of his heart. That's what it says here, the thoughts of his heart. And it wasn't just that, it was the intention of the thoughts of his heart that were wicked. And not only that, look at the words, every, only, and continually. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, you can't really paint a worse picture than this, can you? Now we say, well, that was in Adam's day. And it was pretty bad back then, but I'm sure glad everything's better now. (sighs) Don't bet on it. I believe that we are in the exact same condition today that Adam was in. I'm, I'm sorry, Noah was in at this particular time. How do we know? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. The very first act of violence goes back to who? Cain. Cain killed his brother. He lifted up his hand and he struck his brother and killed him. Six generations later, he has a descendant called Lamech. And Lamech is so proud and arrogant that when this kid comes up and hits him, he kills him and he brags to his wife about how he has killed this, this child, this young person in cold blood. And he said, if, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is going to be avenged seventy-sevenfold. You see this just audacious, arrogant, proud, violent spirit. And we know it wasn't just limited to Cain, and it wasn't just limited to Lamech, because as soon as they came out of the flood, very interestingly, God speaks a word. And he says in chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So God knew of the violence and the murder and how people were shedding each other's blood. There was probably rape taking place, assault, people stealing from each other. Just the same things that are happening today. And you say, well, boy, I'm glad it's not so bad like that today. Who are you kidding? (laughs) Just look around. Just read the newspaper. In 1957, there were 60 attempted murders for every 100,000 people in the United States. Okay? 60 for every 100,000. Fast forward 54 years to 2011. There's 386 attempted murders for every 100,000 people. That's a 600% increase in 50 years. And it shouldn't shock us, should us? Just think about the mass murders. It used, when I was a kid, if one of these mass murders took place, it would take the nation by, by storm, and everybody would be talking about it for months. And now we almost expect them to happen. Don't we? They're happening so much more frequently and so much more intensely. Just a few months ago, December of 2012, that kid went into that school in Newtown, Connecticut, with armed with all these guns, and he killed 20 children and six adults. He killed his mother, and then he killed himself. And then just six or seven weeks ago, the Boston Marathon bombing took place where those two Islamist brothers, these extremists, set off these bombs and three people were killed and 264 were injured. And it just keeps happening. And it keeps happening more and more frequently. We are not any better than the people in the days of Noah. 
The same thing that God told them applies to us. God sees today that the wickedness on the earth is great and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually. So God's wrath was decreed. God's wrath is also deserved. It is deserved. Thirdly, God's wrath was delayed. It was delayed. I want you to go back with me to chapter 5 and pick up there at verse 21. It says, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Say, Brian, what in the world are you trying to tell me? Why are we going back to Genesis chapter 5 to talk about Methuselah and Enoch? Well, it's very simple. Take a look again. Enoch lived 65 years. He fathered a son named Methuselah. What's the first word of verse 22? Then. Then Enoch walked with God. Intimating, implying that he wasn't walking with God before that time. What happened when his son Methuselah was born to cause Enoch to start walking with God? Well, do you know what the word Methuselah means? It means when he dies, it will come. That's the literal rendering of the name Methuselah. God evidently had come to Enoch and given him a revelation that there was this impending doom, this judgment that God was going to bring upon the world and it was going to come when Enoch's son Methuselah died. Interestingly, the very year that Methuselah died was the very year that God sent the flood. You can check it out just by re- adding up the different um, years that people lived, and it, it comes out to the exact year. So here Enoch has a, th- a son named when he dies, it will come. And Enoch takes that to heart, because he doesn't know when his son is going to die. Every time his son gets a cold or gets sick, Enoch is wondering, Does the doom of the world hang in the balance of whether my son lives or dies? And he begins to walk with God because he knows that he he must be prepared to meet his God. He doesn't know when his son is going to die. He doesn't know if his son is going to die before he dies. Interestingly, Methuselah lived 969 years. Did you know he lived longer than any other person ever recorded in Scripture? It's as though God is waiting and waiting, and waiting. He said when he dies it will come, but he keeps lengthening out his life. Mm-hmm. Old Methuselah just keeps on living because God really, in his heart of hearts, would rather not bring judgment. The Bible says judgment is God's strange work. Just as Kelly told us earlier, God does not delight in sending judgment. As I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says in Ezekiel 18. I take no pleasure in it, but I must do it because I am holy and because I am just and because you are rebels who have sinned against me. In order for me to be God, I must bring judgment. But God delays the judgment. Year after year after year. Notice also in Genesis 6 verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, 
His day shall be 120 years. Now what is God saying? He's saying he's starting the egg timer. And when that egg timer goes off in 120 years, judgment's coming. Now, it's amazing to me that God didn't bring swift judgment upon the world 120 years earlier. But he gave them space to repent. He gave them warning. He gave them time. 120 years is a long time for a world to get ready for judgment, isn't it? God was so kind. The Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Our God is slow to anger. He's got a real long fuse, but that fuse will finally be ignited one day. Over in 2 Peter 3, the Bible says that, no, it's 1 Peter 3.20. It says, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. It just kept on waiting, kept on waiting. Or in 1 Peter 3.9, the Bible says, that God is not slow about his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our God is patient, and he waits, and he waits. That's why God has not sent his wrath upon this world up until now. It's not because we don't deserve it. It's because he's a patient, slow to anger God. Thank God that he's slow to anger. Thank God that he's patient. So we find here the delay of the wrath of God. If you go over to chapter uh, 7, verse 16, it says, Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. The door of the ark stood open. Perhaps days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months, perhaps even years. It stood open day after day after day after. But finally, there was a day when God closed the door. And after that day, there was no further possibility of entering the ark. There was no possibility of escape. Those who had not entered the ark by that day were doomed. There was nothing they could do to change their fate. The judgment of God was coming upon them and it was too late. And friends, there's going to come a day just like that one. When the door is going to be shut. So what are you talking about, Brian? Luke 13. Some people came to Jesus and they said, Lord, are there only a few that are going to be saved? And Jesus doesn't answer them about how few or how many. He says, strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they will not be able. Once the head of the household comes and shuts the door and you get up and bang on it, and you say, Lord, open up. Open up to us. What's he going to say? I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And they're going to be startled and shocked. They're going to say, but Lord, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Lord, we went to church. We heard the preacher. We had communion. We heard you speak. We had dinner with you. And the Lord says, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob enter the kingdom of heaven and you are shut out. So there's going to come a day when the door to heaven is shut. No more chances. It's over. 
Just like in the day of Noah. God is delaying wrath, but he won't delay wrath forever. It's going to come. So God's wrath was decreed, it was deserved, it was delayed, but it was also declared. God warned the people of Noah's day that wrath was coming. You say, well, Brian, how do you know that? I, I, I didn't read about anything in chapter 6 or chapter 7 about God warning his people. Well, it's not in those chapters. It's in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. Not only was Noah an ark builder, not only was Noah a farmer, chapter 9, Noah was also a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. You see, Noah told the people, God is a God of righteousness. And you are unrighteous. Therefore, God is going to bring a righteous judgment upon the world. Noah, for 120 years, preached a message to the people that judgment is coming and there is an ark that I'm building that will carry you away to safety. And for 120 years, God's spirit strove with man. Strove with them again and again and again. God had his message of salvation declared to that ungodly world. And the sad thing is, nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. It's not surprising to me because Noah had a pretty difficult message to deliver. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah being warned about God, about things not yet seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now notice what he says clearly there. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. So what did Noah not yet see? Rain. Did you know it had never rained when that flood came upon the world? No, that's right. Take a look in your Bibles at Genesis 2. Verse 5. Here we have a description of the Garden of Eden. And verse 5 it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So how does God water the earth? Not by rain falling from the sky, which seems like, actually when you think about it, that's kind of an incredible thing, that miraculous thing, that water, which is heavy, I carry around pails of water when I wash windows, it's heavy. That water, which is heavy, floats up into the sky, and then at God's command, it just comes on down. What a crazy idea rain is. <laughs> but so here God has this supernatural sprinkler system, this mist that just rises up from the ground and sprinkles all over the place so all the vegetation gets the water it needs. But up until the flood, there had never been rain. So here's Noah. Okay, God said, Noah, I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So Noah tells all his people, God's sending rain. Right. Noah, what's rain? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, it's when Water falls out of the sky onto the 
what are you talking about? Water doesn't fall out of the sky. He, he had a message that was so incredible that he probably looked like the laughingstock of the world. They thought he was a deluded madman. And here he spent 120 years building this gigantic boat. <laughs> and no, what do you need a boat with? You know, nobody has boats. Well, it's because rain's going to come down and there's going to be so much of it that I'm going to have to float away on this big old boat. Noah, you are absolutely out of your mind. So, for 120 years, he goes on building and he goes on preaching and nobody believes him. You know, that gives encouragement to me because sometimes there's precious little fruit when we go around knocking on doors and we talk to people about Christ and we just don't see anything happening. We go, Lord, do I have to keep on doing this? Yes. Well, why, Lord? I'm not being successful. He says, I didn't call you to be successful. I called you to be faithful. Well done, good and successful servant? No. Well done, good and faithful servant. Noah was faithful, wasn't he? 120 years, he did what God called him to do. And God says in Hebrews 11, he's included in the hall of faith. He's my man. He's declared righteous because he believed me. So God's wrath was decreed. It was deserved. It was delayed. It was also declared for these people. And what we find about this is that Jesus Christ himself said that just as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In Noah's day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came and took them all away. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. They shall be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until I come and take them all away to judgment. Now what does it mean for them to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? What's that all about? Yeah, just going on as usual, business as usual. Nobody believes judgment's coming. They all expect tomorrow to be the same as today. You see, in Noah's day, even though they had been warned, the flood was unexpected. Even though preachers and Christians have been warning people of the wrath to come for thousands of years, to them it's going to be unexpected because they don't believe it. And they're going to be swept away to judgment. And people that are swept away are going to say, like in Jeremiah 8.20, the summer is past, the harvest is ended, and we're not saved. And it's too late. The door is closed. All we have to look forward to is an eternity in the lake of fire from which we can never escape. So the wrath of God was declared. It was declared. Finally, and this is the good part, it was also deflected. In other words, not every person on the face of the planet suffered that wrath. There were eight souls that were saved. I want to ask some questions about how the wrath of God was deflected. Number one, why was Noah saved? Okay. Let's take a look at verse 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, 
blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Now it says he was blameless in his time. Does that mean that Noah was a sinless man? No. Because we know very clearly from Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Noah was a descendant of his father Adam who passed on his sinful nature to him. Noah was a sinner like you and me. But he was blameless in his time. The world was so corrupt and so filled with violence that Noah stood out from the rest. In other words, he was a righteous man because he was declared righteous by God. He was a man of faith. He believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He also lived out that relationship to God. He walked with God, lived it out, worshipped God, loved God, and sought to please God. And yes, his actions were righteous, but his actions were not sinless. That tells me that when Noah was saved from the storm of God's wrath, it wasn't because he deserved to be saved. You say, how do I know that? I know that from verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you have a King James, it says Noah found what? Grace. What's grace? Grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved kindness. But Noah found undeserved kindness in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't deserve to be saved. His wife didn't deserve to be saved. His sons or their wives didn't deserve to be saved. But they found grace. Now, why did God bestow grace upon Noah and not upon all these other people? And folks, there could have been several million people on the face of the earth at that time. I did the math this morning. Let's say that each woman has a hundred children, and that would be not very easy to do because she lives 900 years. Each woman has a hundred children, and each one of those girls that she has has a hundred children, and just four generations, you've got a million people. There's seven generations by now. There could have been several hundred millions of people on the earth by this time. So why only eight people? The only thing that we can say is, Thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight, Lord. The sovereign grace of God came to Noah. God, in his compassion, decided to not wipe out the entire human race, but sovereignly to bestow his grace on these eight souls. A second question, how was Noah and his family saved? Well, Chapter 7, verse 7 says, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. How were they saved? They entered the ark. That's how they were saved. Every person in the ark was absolutely safe and secure, and every person outside of the ark was absolutely doomed. Now, those people that were inside of the ark, they could have had all kinds of fears. I'm sure that they heard the ear-splitting thunder and saw the lightning flash up in the sky and they heard that rain beating on top of the ark. And they, many of them probably were worried, but, but what, if the, what if we have to spring a leak? What if water gets into this boat? What if it sinks? There may have been all kinds of fears and all kinds of doubts, but it didn't matter. <laughs> the only thing that mattered was whether they were in the ark or not. Because the ark was waterproof, as we're going to see in a minute. The ark was that which kept them safe. Not their confidence. Not their perfect faith. It was the ark that saved them. 
And all those people outside of the ark, they may have had all kinds of confidence. Oh, I can, I can escape from this rain. No big deal. I'll just climb a mountain, stand on the top. I'll climb the tallest tree. This rain will never catch up to me. All of that confidence that they had in themselves could not save them. And all of the unconfidence that the people in the ark may have had couldn't damn them. What I'm saying is that the only real thing that matters is whether a person was in the ark. And the only thing that really matters is whether you are in Christ or not. That's the only thing that matters. If you're not in Christ, God's wrath is coming. And it will destroy you in hell. If you are in Christ, you shall be saved everlastingly. So that's how they were saved, by getting into the ark. Now, they could have admired the ark because they said, wow, look at that gigantic thing, whatever it is, 450 feet long, one and a half football fields long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. In fact, I just read this week that nobody ever built a bigger boat than that until 1880. So this was a massive structure. It took 120 years for this guy to build. Huge They could have admired it. They could have said, yeah, I know that there's an ark right there. It's a beautiful ark. Noah, you did great work on that ark. But that wasn't going to save anybody. They had to get into the ark. Just looking at it didn't make any difference. Knowing that it existed didn't make any difference. Admiring it didn't make any difference to my friend. Just knowing that God has sent a Savior isn't going to save you. Admiring God for sending a Savior won't save you. You have to get into Christ. You have to, or you're lost. Are you hearing me? Those of you who are not converted, you must get into Christ before it's too late. How were they safe in the ark? They were safe in the ark because the ark took the pounding, the ark took the wrath. The ark took the judgment instead of the people inside of it. There's a very interesting verse. Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. Which says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. So, it wasn't just enough for Noah to build this gigantic structure. Then he had to take pitch... And he had to put that pitch all over this thing, inside and out. Now, what was the reason for that? Make it waterproof. Water could not get in if the pitch covered it. Did you know that that word pitch is elsewhere translated in the rest of the Old Testament as atonement? Why were they safe in the ark? Why was that boat not going to sink to the bottom of the ocean and everyone be destroyed? Because of the pitch. Why are you going to be safe? Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The atonement is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And if Christ died for sinners, and if your trust is in his death for you, you have a waterproof ark. (laughs) The flood of God's wrath can't get to you because it was already spent on him. Jesus absorbed that wrath. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The flood fell on the ark. God's wrath fell on Jesus. So that if you're in Jesus, you're safe. Do you see it? But you've got to be in Jesus. You've got to be. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. It has nothing to do with you. It has something to do with what he did. What did he do? He absorbed the almighty, furious, horrific wrath of God against sin. So that's why Noah and his family were saved. One final point. How many ways of escape were there? One. God didn't tell Noah to build two arks or three arks and then tell the people of the world, take your pick. He built one. And how many doors were in this ark? One. There's one way into the ark and there's only one way of escape. And people hate it when Christians start talking about the fact that there's only one way that you can be saved. But folks, it is the truth. That's why we tell people that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door. There's only one way. And so if you're not converted this morning, get into the ark. You say, well, Brian, how do I do it? How do I get into the ark? You get into the ark by trusting Jesus. What does that mean? What are you talking about? It means that you make a commitment of yourself to Christ. You entrust your soul to the safekeeping of Jesus. You see that what Jesus did was enough and you bank everything on what he did. Do you understand that concept? It's like if I was thrown into the sea and someone threw me a life preserver and I clung to that life preserver, I'm entrusting my destiny to that life preserver. That's my only hope that I'm going to survive this catastrophe. God has sent us one life preserver. It's His Son, Jesus Christ. And you've got to cling to Him with all your might. Because He's your only hope. And so, to become a Christian means that you entrust yourself to Jesus. And you trust what He accomplished to cover your sins. It involves a commitment of yourself to Him. It involves a surrender of yourself to Him. It's a taking Jesus and all that He is and saying, I trust Him. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. He's Lord. He's Savior. I commit myself to Jesus in all of those ways. He's my treasure. You give Him all that you are. Jesus said, Jesus said that if we seek to gain our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ's sake and for the Gospels, we're going to find it. To become a Christian means you're willing to lose your life. You're willing to give it up. You're willing to sell everything to have the treasure. You're willing to turn from any sin that he tells you, this is wrong, give it up, it's got to go. Okay, Lord, by your help, it's going to go. Give me the power because I'm determined to follow in your path. 
It means repentance from all sin that God points His finger on in your life and faith in Christ to deliver you from all sin. That's what it means to become a Christian. And God is calling you and inviting you and commanding every one of you to get into the ark today. For those of us who are Christians, what is this all about? I think what it's all about is let's learn a little bit from Noah's life. Noah was faithful. Faithful to warn men of something that had never happened. He was willing to be mocked, to be jeered at, to be thought a fool. But he went on year after year after year and he warned people of the wrath to come. Now, Christians, listen real carefully for a minute. If we really believe that what we're talking about is going to happen, how can we sit in our cozy, comfortable houses day after day and never get out and never tell anybody that this is coming? I mean, for the love of God and for the love of man, how can we do it? If you saw your next door neighbor's house on fire and you knew there was a little child in that house, would you just sit home and watch TV? Come on, folks. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to get real serious about the gospel and about spreading this gospel. May God give us grace to do so. Because the world is on fire. Lord, would you spread the truth of Genesis 6 and also the truth of the coming of Jesus Christ into our hearts and cause it to take root, Lord. And cause it to change us. Lord, would you cause Christians here today to see them, to see the destruction of the world coming, to really see it by the eye of faith and to do something about it, to warn their neighbors. And Lord, would you cause those that are not converted here today to get into the ark of Christ and to find shelter from the wrath of God through him. Do it, Lord. Only you can do this. We know that, and so we cry out for you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.